In 2018, there was this article in Reuters reporting on a biased or discriminatory algorithm that Amazon had created for hiring purposes. So they built this AI software to look at all of the resumes and flag the good ones and, you know, flag the bad ones as well. They had to train, of course, their AI on how to recognize the good ones and the bad ones. So they took hiring data from, call it, the past 10 years or so and said, look, here are the resumes that led to hires that some human judged as worthy of an interview. Here are the ones that were judged not worthy of an interview. Learn that interview-worthy pattern, and you know that way we can streamline the, the hiring process. We don't have to have people looking at every resume. We can just have people looking at the resumes that were already screened by the AI and judged to be worthy of an interview. Save a lot of time and money. Now, unfortunately, the pattern that the AI recognized was we don't hire women around here. So it was biased or discriminatory against women. So when they gave it a new resume, all else equal, if it was a woman's resume, it got red lit. And if it was a, man, a man's resume, it got green lit. Now, that's obviously not an acceptable conclusion. And some people see this as a really big fail by the case of by Amazon. In fact, there's a way in which this is a success story because Amazon, those data scientists had the good sense to check for whether or not their model was unacceptably biased. They found that bias. They actually worked on debiasing or mitigating the biases of the model. And after work on this project for two years, to their great credit, they scrapped it. Now, so I actually think this is a success story in AI ethics, not, but, you know, not, not something to blame them for. That said, it raises huge alarms, right, for the AI HR industry. And there's a tremendous amount hundreds, maybe even thousands of AI vendors in the HR space. So bias or discriminatory models are a big deal in general. And they're especially a big deal in HR because after all, we're talking about people's access to jobs and so money and so livelihood and providing for their family, et cetera. So I wanted to dig in deeper into that AI HR space to see where we are, to see what the issues are. And so I talked to Hilke and Mona about these issues. And as you'll see, it's, it's really complicated. Aside from the fact that it's difficult to de-bias or mitigate the biases of models, in the HR space, it's, it's also very difficult to determine whether you're doing better than human hirers because we actually don't have good data about how good or bad human hirers are. So it's a really complex issue, and it's also phenomenally important because this is not, you know, like those people who are talking about the existential risks of AI sometime tomorrow. This is yesterday and today. These, these AI systems are in place now. So getting a good grip on how these systems work, where the faults are, and what we need to do to fix them or to do better is, is crucial. It's a crucial conversation. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. And as always, I hope you get something out of it. So I wanted to talk to you today because you are both experts in the realm of AI and HR. I think HR, human resources, is phenomenally important in an AI context, both because it is seemingly ubiquitous, although you can fill us in about just how ubiquitous it is. There also seems to be tons of obvious risks. There's obviously lots of talk about discriminatory hiring algorithms. There's also regulation around this stuff, especially in New York City, around getting independent audits. So because there's so much activity in the area, it made sense to talk to you. Hilka, you've got a book coming out. 
tell us what the big idea of that book is. On this very topic. So I'm an investigative journalist and I don't code, but I got access to a lot of these tools and I tested them kind of from a job applicant's perspective. What is happening? I did some adverse testing of these tools. So one of it, for example, was supposed to sort of score me how good my English is. So this is an an AI tool that is marketed to Western companies who need to hire call center employees in India, the Philippines, you know, people who whose native English and native languages in English. And so the AI is supposed to score their English ability. So I spoke English to the tool, got an 8.5 out of 9, so very competent in English. Congratulations. Thank you. I was very yeah. proud of English. <laughs> so I was like, wow, look at me. And AI thinks I'm very good at English. I will tell my partner because he makes jokes about my thick German accent sometimes when I speak English. But what what also happened is, you know, I talked to the developers and I tell them, like, you know, what happens if somebody has, uh, you know, a speech impairment, a, dis- a disability, they speak a foreign language, like, how good is the tool? And they always tell me, well, there is a certain threshold. So if a job applicant scores under a certain threshold, you know, it, it will be routed to a human and we need to do some other assessment because they can do a fair assessment. So I was like, great, I'm going to speak to the tool in German, which is my first language. And, you know, it's going to create an error rate and I'm going to be routed to a human. Sure. I did that. I spoke, I didn't say a word of English, answered all the questions in German. And I was surprised when I did get a score and I was scored six out of nine English proficient. I didn't say hmm. a word of English. So those are the kinds of tests that I do with these tools. And they kind of may want, you know, folks who use these tools in their HR portfolio may want to test these tools as well and also think really skeptical about this. Like what is happening inside these tools? How are people scored? You know, and I talked to the developers afterwards, like, tell me how I was scored. If I was, you know, if, if you're in front of a judge and I'm a job applicant who was rejected, can you tell the judge why I was, why I was rejected for the job or why I scored six out of nine? Can you tell me? And they couldn't. So that, you know, there's, there's, there's a real lack of transparency, understanding, even from the side of developers. Some of these tools are very basic. But the problem is like, even if we get rid of, you know, if we have more sophisticated ones, the problem is like the stakes are very high here, right? Like I get nervous before a job interview because it matters. It matters if I get, get a job, right? It's like part part of like how I put food on the table, how I make sure I have an apartment, my child is fed. And it also matters to my identity, right? Like a lot of us feel very strongly about their their jobs and their lives. So, you know, if I get rejected for a job on the merits because I'm not qualified, I will accept but if I get rejected because a tool wasn't able to understand my language or for whatever reason it didn't work, that's really concerning. So that's part of this journey that I'm going on, testing a lot of these tools, understanding how they work and like pulling apart how they may work. Yeah. Okay. So, so it sounds like, all right, there's all these, I want, I want, I still want you to answer how ubiquitous are these tools, but the, the main, the main thing here is there, there's enough of them such that we should be looking at them. That's the first thing to say. The second thing is we know that they are faulty, let's say, for lack of a better word, and they sound to be faulty in a variety of ways. One is that you pointed out they're just not very good. They're just sort of inaccurate things like you speak German to it and it just gets English and it gives you a pretty decent score in English. So that's just a non-functional piece of equipment. And then the other way in which it seems to be faulty is if you like ethically faulty or discriminatorily, it's potentially discriminatory in the ethical sense because it might not get people with a certain accent or it might not get people who have a certain kind of speech impediment or something along those lines. So there are ethical concerns. And then, of course, why this is so important is we're talking about people's livelihoods and their ability to provide for their families, their 
their lives, plan their lives, flourishing, blah, 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 blah. Access to the basic goods of life. Uh, yeah, that- so, let me, so let me jump in and, and tell you how ubiquitous it, this is. Yeah. AI is everywhere in, in hiring and 99% of Fortune 500 companies use AI along the chain of hiring. Sorry, what was that percent? In, you know, along the, the funnel of hiring, right? Yeah. Like, you know, they either, either use it for resume screening, they maybe send people one-way video interviews that, that, that use AI to score people, they may have AI games. And all the big online job platforms, like if, if you're a job applicant and you submit your resume to LinkedIn, to Monster, all of these companies use some form of AI. All, like all major applicant tracking systems that maybe are used in-house have some sort of AI built in. I can't tell you which company turns on what function. Sure, sure. Uh, but we know they're all using it. And some use it to a more aggressive degree than others. And these tools are being used on, on folks who are hourly workers where there's a high turnover. So like almost most of the jobs for like large retails change in the U.S., fast food, trucking, all of these tools are used on folks in, in those professions. It's also being increasingly used for college graduate, graduate students, because you have a lot of people applying for entry-level jobs. And a lot of companies are just like, I don't know, they all have like, you know, they have great GPAs, yeah. have a 10-year job history. So it's really hard to make a differentiation, let's let, let's ask them to play AI games. So let me so let me sort of I don't know, sort of push back a little bit, or at least sort of get into that to the mindset of the people who are who are using the software. They say, "Look, we get a ton of applications, thousands, tens of thousands. It's a lot of work to go through. We literally can't go through all of them by hand. We're just at that point where we can't you know we can't hire armies of of hiring managers. or take too much." too much resources. And yeah, of course, this, it's imperfect. Of course, the, the AI hiring software or wherever the software is throughout the hiring process in that funnel that you described, of course, it's imperfect. But so are the people, you know, so are hiring managers. So I guess the question is something like, is it really that much worse than what we've got going on? There's a couple of, th- of thoughts I have. So first of all, human hiring, very now, we've seen women and people of color over the last few decades being underrepresented in the workplace, right? So we know human hiring is no good either. I'm not trying to say we should go back to that. Mm. And I understand the pain that these companies have, right? They, you know, somebody I talked to at Indeed, they call them shotgun employers, people who just apply to every kind of job. Mm. You know, it's what they can do. They want to sure. find a job. They apply to thousands of jobs. On the other hand, companies are drowning in resumes. Totally get there needs to be a technological solution. But... We need to, we as like the heads of HR or whoever is, is, is in charge, need to make sure that this is working. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, and, you know, as people know, like Amazon had a problem where it downgraded their resume, AI resume screener, downgraded folks who had the word woman or women right. or women's sports on their resume. So that the scope of something like that, if that, if, you know, imagine that would have been used on all applicants coming into Amazon. That's hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah thousands of women who've been downgraded. The scope is unprecedented that folks, you know, humans can can do that. And I've also, you know, I talked to a lot of employment lawyers because they're one of the few folks who get access, right? Like if a large Fortune 500 company, you know, wants to work with a vendor, often they bring in an employment lawyer to make sure there's compliance. You know, everyone signs an NDA, so we don't know the names of, sure. of, of, of all the actors. But employment lawyers have told me over and over again that they find they find faulty keywords. You know, there was Thomas and Elsie were predictors of success in resume parsers. 
Sorry, um, it was Thomas and what? The name Thomas and Elsie. Elsie? Elsie. Who knows? There were probably what, two Elsies in the pile. <laughs> The word church, something that like, you know. Is... Yeah, the, with Amazon, they used, uh, it turns out being a man highly correlated with using the word execute, like they executed on a strategy, right? So they said, don't pay attention to the word woman, but it still got the same outputs because men use the word execute a lot. And I guess that correlates with alleged success. Yeah. So, you know, it's just a correlation, right? It's a pattern recognition. People yeah. who are on the yes pile at Amazon tend to be, you know, male because that's who Amazon hired mostly. And sort of those, you know, whatever words they use, they are become the signifier of success. Although right. you're saying execute on your resume doesn't mean anything if you're a success. Of course. Right. Right. Um, but a machine wouldn't know that. So yeah. we have this unprecedented scope and problems where like employment lawyers tell me, oh, we looked at this AI games company and they were over like they couldn't pass the four or fifth rate, meaning like if 100% men get through, not 80% of women got through the assessment. And however we tuned and turned it, we couldn't turn it off. So the large company said no to the tool, but the vendor is still around, still doing business because no one knows. So those are the problems that we see again, again, and again. And that's what concerns me. Do you have a view about, you know, some, some people I know think that, look, of course the AI shouldn't make a hiring decision or a, a decision whether the person gets an interview. I think that's the Amazon case based on whether they, you know, were members of the women's chess club or whatever it was, right? But if it's not, you know, I guess the question is something like, suppose that all those things are ruled out and it does make decisions on certain kinds of other variables that happen to correlate with being a woman. Do you have a view about whether that, that, audit, that nonetheless counts as, as hiring on discriminatory grounds if they don't, if, in if you like the rationale, if I could use that, if I can use that word, I'm not sure that I, I can justifiably, but the rationale of the algorithm, the rules that transform the inputs to outputs, if it does exclude those things and it happens to find a correlation with some other stuff, do you think that makes it necessarily discriminatory? Yeah, I think I, I think a huge problem of proxies that we use all the time. Yeah. You know, let me throw one at you. So we have three people in the call. Look at us. Like, who's successful in this podcast? Three people with brown hair. Well, maybe, you know, it, like an AI would, would pick up the pan of brown hair. Sign for success. Let me only find people with brown hair. Obviously, no, that's like deeply discriminatory because, you know, that doesn't mean anything about brown hair. It says nothing about how much are we qualified. Yeah. And so are the things that like are connected to proxies to our gender or, for example, zip codes. Companies have used zip codes sure. for hiring that's, that's connected to redlining. There's all kinds of very, and the problem with, with some of the resume parsers is, look, if it would only look at the skills, it would be a really good screen, right? Because if, if, presumably, if I want to hire for a Python developer job, everyone who submits a resume has Python on their resume. That is a non, it, it wouldn't be helpful to screen. Right, on. right. It's not a differentiator. I, I need to look at something else. So what does the tool start looking at? Companies? background schools, hobbies, if you put it on there, that's why all these hobbies and names come in because the AI starts looking at those things as mm. a potential differentiator. Well, we know that like these are correlated with uh, money, our socioeconomic status, our background of our families, and not so much with our merits and our success. So that's how like all of these little things come back into, into the decision makings and proxies do become discriminatory unless you really closely look into them and can say, you know what? Playing softball is a differentiator of, of success. But then the question mm -hmm. is like, why not playing baseball? Why not playing choir? Like, I mean, the, you know, like what, why, why yeah. is it significant? Well, I mean, so 
some of these things strike me as really ethically objectionable, right? If you're saying we're not going to, you know, if the machine says so to speak, we're not interviewing, interviewing you on the grounds that you're a woman, that seems plainly ethically problematic. Other things seem irrelevant, but not ethically problematic. So if it turns out that a company is hiring people because they played baseball in college or, you know, some sport, soccer in college, I would think that's not ethically, it doesn't strike me as obviously ethically problematic. It strikes me as irrelevant and stupid. But should I, should I be, should I sort of be upset ethically speaking if it's if for any, any and all irrelevant features that the AI might pick up on? Yes. So because I think that the problem is in the United States, we have the mandate, and I hope all employers have that, that we are hiring because somebody has a skill or experience that is job relevant. So is playing baseball in college job relevant? I mean, unless it's a baseball coach, probably not. Is it teamwork maybe that you learned? Well, then you should include all sports. Also, baseball. Who plays baseball? A lot of men. How many women do play baseball? Very, very few. They call it softball. Is softball part of this? Like, I mean, it gets really, you know, is, is this actually a critical skill? Then we shouldn't hire for it. You could hire for brown hair or baseball or large shoe sizes. You know, you could hire, you could think about basketball player. Well, sure. they large shoe sizes. Should you hire people with large shoe sizes? No, not all of them are good baseball. Yeah. Also, you would exclude a whole lot of women because women on average have less bigger shoe sizes. So what, what, if I, what if I suggest this? Maybe tell me if this is, a, if this is okay to you. Look, you said hiring for a Python job, all, you know, it's a 5,000, 1,000, whatever it is, 500 resumes, everyone knows Python. That's the only really, that's the main relevant skill. Vet for that. Make sure that everyone's got the minimum skills or requirements. Let's hope that that doesn't rule out thing, people in a discriminatory fashion. And then from there, just flip a coin. Just do a random, random interviewing across that pool. Yeah, I mean, look, a random number generate as personally as it feels unfair to us, it's actually very fair because we mm. have the fair chance to be rejected. Yeah. Not that companies love that. They want to find the, the most qualified people. But I guess my question is like with these AI tools, I totally get they make, they make hiring more efficient. They make it, you know, companies save a ton of money. I totally agree to that. Yeah. We haven't seen any evidence that suggests that they find the most qualified applicants. So it reduces the, the, the folks who are in the pool. Yeah. But you could do that with an Excel sheet and just randomly pick, pick people out of it with like a random number generator. So that's interesting. So, I mean, there's a way in which, you know, you could automate the stuff. You could automate checking for the requirements. You got to meet, you, you know, you must be this tall to, to ride this ride or whatever. Once you meet those requirements, which is a relatively dumb process of verification, so to speak, you don't need, you know, deep neural nets to see if they can, they, they can code or whatever the job is. Then... Instead of using the smartest thing you can possibly find, like a deep neural network AI that's looking for these really complex patterns that are allegedly correlative with success on the job, you want the dumbest thing around. <laughs> you want a random, I'm not, this is not a critique. It sounds like get a, get a random number generator. It, it, it will do the job. You'll get the outputs just as, you know, just as well. The outputs will be just as good, if not better than if you would use an AI. And the method is, not, is, is non-discriminatory in nature. Yeah. So I think one of the things is like there isn't a whole lot of transparency, right? What keywords are being used? What differentiator is being used? So think about the, the old days. Somebody would, was, was applying for a firefighter job and I knew what the assessment was. I have to, I have to carry 200 pounds from A to B. Well, now yeah. I don't know what the assessment is in the resume, right? I can't challenge it in court. So I can't tell you, hey, you know what? 
what 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 you are looking at baseball playing in in college is actually not fair. And I'm I'm, I'm going to challenge you in court. We actually can't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. So you know that's how we weeded out discrimination in the past because women went to court and said, I don't understand the two hundred pound. Is that required for the job? Yeah. Do you really have to carry this, or is this an exclusion of women because women overall, you know, and right. not as strong as men? So we could challenge those assessment tools. We can't do that really anymore because we don't know what we're being assessed upon. So yeah. I think like a matter of transparency is really important. And if a tool is discriminatory in the United States, uh, if the EUC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, finds that it, that it is discriminatory, often the four-fifth rule, right? Men and women and different races don't pass at the same rate. Companies have to show that the, either is this business irrelevant or is this like a, it's job relevant. You, you, you might not actually win saying like, oh, well, the AI picked baseball. I thought it was important. Right, right. Important. There, it's interesting. There's a couple of things here. I mean, one is you have to assess whether the criteria for the requirements are discriminatory in some way. I take it that you could have requirements that wind up violating the four-fifths rule. Inadvertently. So, uh, yeah. you know, baseball being it like has, you have to be a physics major or something along those lines. And it turns out that physics majors are disproportionately male. And so they get blah, 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 blah. So it could be that the requirements themselves are are potentially discriminatory. And and then the you have to just prove that they're job relevant. So, right. Of course, if, the, if you need a Ph.D. in physics and the, then right, it's excusable. Sure. But the the other thing that you're talking about is this black box issue. We don't know the decision, the basis on which the decisions were made. And I take it that there are two issues there. One is what gets called the global explainability. You don't know the, what the rules of the game are, or you don't know what transforms inputs to outputs. And if you don't know what the rules of the game are, you can't determine whether the rules of the game are fair, just, reasonable, or unfair, discriminatory, et cetera. But then there's another part to that, which is local explainability, which is we want an explanation for why this particular person got denied an interview. And one that really, you know, so that's not going to be able to be determined if the whole thing is a black box. But one thing that's really interesting to me, and I don't really know how to, I'm just going to give you a scenario when I don't, I'd it'd be interested to hear how you, how you might think about this or if you've got thoughts on it. Usually when we talk about the bias mitigation of, of models, we're talking about, you know, get, getting a better score on, getting a, getting a better bias score. You know, the model is less biased. It's, it's producing less discriminatory outputs. So imagine you've got something like 10 candidates for a job, just to take a simple number. You've got 10 candidates for a job and model one discriminates against, you know, you have a model and it discriminates against candidates, you know, one, two, and three, but not four through 10, for instance. Mm -hmm. And you're like, oh, that's not acceptable. We need it to be less biased. And so you, you train the model differently and now it's a less biased model. And now it discriminates against just person 10, candidate 10, but not, not one through three. It's a less biased model, but I take it that that candidate number 10 still has grounds for ethical and legal complaint that they've been discriminated against even though the superior model from a bias perspective was chosen. Yes. And I think it comes down to sort of like AI just is sort of looking at patterns in, in, in groups and makes assumptions about you as a group. And you may be part of that or not, right? It's, it assumes like you're part of this group and you are this, and there's always false positives and false negatives. So we, we have noise and problems in, in any kinds of models. But the problem is, how do you feel as a person if you were number 10? So would, would you be okay be be rejected for your G dream job? And it's because somebody said, well, the model was biased, but you know, it was less biased. Everyone else got through. 
but but you sorry so i think that's sort of the the problem here that we as job applicants we are ourselves and and and, and we are one person and we want to be treated fairly and unbiased yeah. versus tools treat us in groups and that often doesn't seem fair to the individual yeah mona you've been sitting there patiently come on in I love listening to Hilke and her work. So I'm <laughs> it's, good. it's great. <laughs> I I mean, honestly, I think the whole bias question and all of these issues are issues that are important to recruiters as well. People, the actors in the mm. industry who are very often asked by their employers to use certain tools because their employers bought huge licenses. Or because they work freelance and they are really under pressure to place a lot of people, or they work in agencies, which equally is very often placement based. There's a base rate and then there's an added compensation for actually placing a candidate, which means that they actually start the work, that they actually go to work on the first day. So it's all to say that the, the sort of use of the tools is not always by choice. I'm not defending the industry, but I think it's important context. The other important context that I think we need to provide here is that there are many tools that are used at the same time for recruiting purposes and for assessment purposes, for screening purposes, later on for evaluation and so on. And it is difficult difficult for us to understand where automated decision-making through an AI tool happens sort of independently without a human intervention in this sort of ecosystem of decisions and tools and where it didn't. Hilker earlier spoke about high volume recruiting where HR departments or agencies have the huge challenge of placing tens of thousands of people and also have the challenge of dealing with hundreds of thousands of applicants. That's sort of on one side of the spectrum. And I think if we're going to see a lawsuit that really is able to nail where systematic discrimination happens in truly autonomous decision-making and hiring. It's going to be in the high-volume spectrum. But there also is the low-volume spectrum where recruiters source for sort of rarer talent with specific skill sets and where they use many, many different tools and techniques to reach out to candidates screen candidates in different ways. And so there's a lot more of this distributed decision-making that is happening, sort of the low-volume recruiting and sourcing here. And we can't pinpoint really where sort of the human bias comes in, where the machine bias comes in, and so on. The third thing is that recruiters actually have been working with technology for a long time. They're very familiar with large volumes of data. You know, it used to be that you would email, you would email, you would mail your resume and your cover letter and it would go into the filing cabinet and recruiters and agencies would build up these large analog data sets of resumes and, and letters and essentially people. And so they're familiar with it. It eventually went digital with the applicant tracking systems that Hilke spoke about earlier and Originally, this whole business of finding people was very traditional information retrieval stuff. 
they use very traditional techniques. Keyword search, sort of a one-on-one -on -one fit between is the keyword on the resume that I am putting into my search bar. What we now have with AI-driven candidate search is a semantic search. So we have search engines that don't just look for keywords, but that look for related words because it, the system understands, quote-unquote, the meaning or the relationship between certain words and their meaning. I can give you an example. My husband searched for Dustbuster in his email account the other day because we needed new filters. And because there is a huge push towards AI-driven semantic search because we have ChatGPT, the email search turned out all emails about vacuums, Roomba, and all hmm. of that. It was actually more, you know, it wasn't actually helpful information. Less helpful, yeah. And the, the point is that because recruiters have this sort of traditional epistemology of searching for candidates by way of Boolean search, Boolean search is a technique that basically is concerned with identifying the relationship between things. So you can put in a Boolean search whereby you can say skill, Python, and or R, and New York City or Boston. And the Boolean search sort of brings up people where the relationship between those is true. They, recruiters, think about candidate search in Boolean terms. They sure. call this a Boolean epistemology. And semantic search completely challenges that. And they come up against that all the time because they don't understand how their Boolean string relates to the candidate outputs. And that means that very often recruiters don't trust these AI search systems. So I mm. would say, last point, there's not a whole lot of trust among professionals in some of these tools. So I take it, okay, so there's a lot There's a lot there. I think it, the first thing is that it's not always the recruiter's fault that they're inadvertently engaging in discriminatory or bringing about discriminatory impacts because they're using systems that their bosses have created and, or have not created, but sourced from a third-party vendor. They weren't involved in the procurement process. They didn't have any power, they, you know, they, and they got to just do their job. And this is the tools that they were given. So one thing is to say is it's not the, the appropriate, you know, the blame shouldn't lie on the shoulders of those people who are, are having to use those tools because it's not typically up to them. I think that's the first point. The second point is you've got lots of technologies interacting with lots of people in various unpredictable ways. And so it's hard, it's hard to figure out what a good bias mitigation strategy looks like, given that there's all these moving parts. I think that's the, the second point you're driving at. And then the third point was something like they're also operating in unpredictable ways, these tools, even if it's just a one-off tool, it's operating in all these unpredictable ways such that the recruiters can't rely on them. They don't, if you like to, to sort of use your language in a way, the AI is not thinking the way that they think. And so when they make a certain kind of request, it gives them a certain kind of answer that's not commensurate with the kind of thing they were thinking about. It gives them something else. And then they have no, they don't really have, a, and because they don't, it's a black box, they don't have a really good way of understanding, wait, what the hell's gone on here? Why did I get this kind of answer? Which makes it really hard to do your job. Do I have that right? Yeah, that's an A plus. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> so, so let me ask you both a question about what's the appropriate bar and what we should be looking to achieve here. I mean, one of the go-to examples I like when thinking about the appropriate benchmark is self-driving cars. Someone else gave me this example. I forgot who years ago, but it's something like, look, if you're going to deploy self-driving cars, 
you don't want them to be, you know, among the worst drivers on the road. You don't want them to be like the worst humans. That's not the, obviously that's not the important benchmark. You might think that the appropriate benchmark is the average human driver. If a self-driving car is as good as the average human driver, then it's safe to deploy. But it turns out that's a bad benchmark because the average human driver is a really shitty driver. They're very distracted. They're eating. They're talking. They're changing the station on their, on Spotify. They're, you know, whatever. They're doing all sorts of things that are, are they're highly distracted. They're tired. They're, they're hungover. <laughs> they're high, whatever. So that can't be the best. That can't be the appropriate benchmark for self-driving cars and being safe. So you think, okay, the appropriate benchmark for when it's safe to deploy self-driving cars is, is something like, at least as good as our best drivers. And our best drivers are, that is to say, non-distracted, non-inebriated, et cetera. Our best drivers are better than self-driving cars as they exist now. So it's not yet safe, one might think, if that's the appropriate benchmark, to start releasing self-driving cars, period, let alone at scale. So take that. Now I guess I want to ask, one, what should the benchmark be for using hiring software? What's the appropriate benchmark? Is it as good as the average hire? Is it at least as good as our best hirers. So I guess that's, let's start there. What's, what's the appropriate benchmark? And maybe where are we in, in pursuit of that benchmark? Have we met that benchmark yet? Have we passed it? Are we miles away from it? Where are we? I would challenge your idea of this benchmark. So I, I, I have a couple of thoughts on this. So there is, you know, in, in most of like the accuracy and, and prediction number I get, I'm like, how did you come up with this? Well, we had human hiring managers or IO psychologists, you know, predict who is who, like they watched their video interviews and they predicted you are, you know, this is a good answer for somebody who is a team worker. And this is somebody who was like more self reliant. So there is actually no ground truth. Like with drivers, it's a little different. Like I can look at your record and see Mm. if you've been a good driver, have you caused any accidents? But I don't actually know if this human radar rated somebody well, and they actually turned out to be a team worker, right? I just assumed based on their answers, they're a team worker, but mm. no checks that this person actually needed to be a team worker. Are they a team worker? Did they excel in this job? We don't have any long-term data. So I think the benchmarking quite doesn't work here because we don't have ground truth data to compare it to. Yeah. What I think that like, and this is, you know, going to take a huge amount of work is to test like, you know, how do we test that a medication work well? We tested in like clinical trials against a placebo. So let's test, you know, you have to have two tracks. You have to have like traditional hiring and then you have maybe an AI tool and you test over time that they are these people successful. And we also think through what makes somebody successful. It's another whole can of worm, right? Yeah. A lot of things to, to, to test you and we don't have a benchmark. I can't check. Did you become a good worker or not? Like, I don't know that. And none of the vendors know that and even fortune 500 companies as far as i know don't have a feedback loop to check did this person actually to- turn out two years down the road to be to be a quote, team player or a leader or whatever yeah yeah or whatever and, the prediction was yeah you know often the benchmark is like did we you know did you know the the in resume screeners often oh these are the people that we asked for an interview that these must be the good resumes mm. but we don't even know if you hired those people if they were any good so you've mm-hmm. been working people on something that is is inherently a very slow process. Yeah. So, so let me again. Let me play sort of the skeptic's role and say something like, "Okay, well, there's no benchmarks, not really, because we don't have we don't have good data around, you know, whether whether the hiring process is a good one, whether it turns out good people, how how those people succeed, whether they succeed in a way that is commensurate with 
the prediction. I mean, maybe they succeed. Maybe they thought they were going to be great team players. And as it turns out, they're not great team players, but they're great, whatever, stokers of disagreement and fruitful conversation. You know, the, so they're still successful in the role, but not for the reasons that was predicted. So just mere success is not sufficient for saying this is a good hiring system. It has to be success in line with what they were predicted to be successful for to prove that the hiring criteria were, were effective. So we don't have the data. So we don't have a good benchmark to know whether the AI is better we might have benchmarks and do we have do we have benchmarks around bias something like here's in a given organization here's how we might measure bias in the past 10 years of the hiring process and here's how we can measure it with the ai do, is that a, is that available not publicly i mean i hope so sure not publicly but and and say like okay we have hired so many people you know folks of color women versus men yeah uh, do we hire more uh, what i often hear is like you know, from AI vendors saying, oh, we increase the diversity in the hiring pool yeah. by 60%. And I was like, okay, what does diversity mean? Yeah, sure. Answer. Like diversity can mean really very, very many things. And also yeah. applicant pool, I mean, good for you, but did that actually rise to the occasion of hiring more a more diverse set of, of, of applicants? And also, were they all similarly qualified? You know, another, another problem that we have with AI systems is like they might be calibrated for one particular set of folks because it's based on mostly men playing these AI games. Yeah. Uh, maybe men come through and women get through for whatever reason, but they might not be the most qualified. So then you end up with, because the tool isn't built for them. So there's all kinds of problems that can come in with AI. And the problem is the scope here. It's like, if you have everyone that applies, go through these AI screens. If you have a problem, you are rejecting people on faults and on on problematic assumptions yeah. through the roof and not just five people. And I'm not trying to say it's good to 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 reject five people on problematic grounds. Sure. But the danger is 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 less severe. I mean look one thing I I think that I'm getting from you is and you haven't said this explicitly, but I think it's been implicit in every in a lot of what you've been saying and you as well, Mona, is something like there's lots of calls for doing like I mentioned earlier, the New York City, you know, model bias audit. And there's something, I'm going to put this in an extreme way. There's something just totally naive and stupid about that. And the reason it's naive and stupid is that it, it's an attempt to look for bias inside of a model, but the model exists inside of a larger system, including, you know, the criteria for the criteria for requirements, including what applicant pool you target or who you know, where you advertise the job. There's just so many other things within, there's so many other variables within the hiring process that to focus on the algorithm or the model inside of this is just, it's way too narrow. It's, it's you know, you could have a, a not, you know, a relatively, whatever this means, unbiased model or a mitigated biased model, but still have a hiring process that's, that's riddled with bias and discrimination. So why make a regulation that targets the model when it should be about the process from A to B where the model is a part of that picture, but it's certainly not the focus? You're both nodding. I think that's a, <laughs> I, I think that's a very valid comment. Yeah. And I'm not sure, though, that AI regulation is interpreted in those purely technical terms or should, because in the case of Employment and hiring specifically, Hilke said this earlier, we are already moving in a space that is very regulated. So there is existing anti-discrimination 
legislation in the United States that's quite robust, that companies are very used to dealing with, that recruiters and hiring managers to the degree that they have experience in hiring, hiring managers, just the person that's actually getting a new team member, uh, you know, are well-versed in. And so the when I talk to vendors about compliance and innovation compliance, then they are very clear about that, that this is happening in a context that is already regulated. And they also interpret AI regulations through the lens of existing employment regulation already. Mm -hmm. So they're doing that. However, what is really important, what you got at here is that we need innovation in compliance. It is no longer a sort of single discipline issue that we're looking at here and you know in the way in which we maybe you know when we audit finance it, it used to be we're really truly looking at a socio-technical phenomenon and so compliance meaningful compliance which means you actually comply with the spirit of the law not just the letter of the law sure is also a socio-technical matter and that means that we need collaborations between various actors and disciplines, social science, technologists, legal journalists, especially investigative journalists, to come up with innovation Just Hilka. compliance. Hilka with a cape. There's a bunch of others. There's a bunch of others that are really good. But it's not, you know, that that's what that's 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 the appropriate response to regulation. And mind you, regulations have to be a little bit superficial because they have to be future proof. You don't want to be too specific so that you exclude future technologies and future scenarios because we're getting a regulation enacted is such a long process and we can't really get too specific because then we bake in, you know, obsolescence. Yeah. So, okay, if you you have one thing to tell the regulator, the regulators, right? They're, they're going to come up with new regulation. Here's the one thing, like if, if nothing else happens, this is the one thing that you've got. This is the one piece of regulation that I think you've got to focus on. Maybe that you're not focusing on now. What is, what is that thing? Or is there such a thing? I would tell politicians and, and regulators to really think through the conflict of interest here because I've, I've reported on two audits in the AI hiring space that we've seen, and they were both... Sorry, con conflicts of interest between which parties? The, 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 the conflict of interest was that Companies, vendors being asked to pay outside third parties to audit their algorithms. Yeah. I think that is inherently because the person you're paying is writing the report on you. It's mm -hmm. a conflict of interest because they mm -hmm. want to be getting paid. And we've seen this in the outcomes. Like one of the reports, one actually the founders of the companies were part of the academic paper that was published. Like that's a conflict of interest. Like auditors cannot work with the CEOs, companies and publish together and get paid. So what I'm trying to say is like, can we have a third party that has a non-monetary interest uh, test these tools? That is usually the government or some sort of nonprofit government entity that needs to look at this because otherwise there is mo monetary interest that we have, that has not worked. And we've seen this in the financial industry. That was the problem of like all these uh, shitty mortgages because the companies were paid by the large banks to rate them. And they rated them all triple A because they wanted more business. So, okay, so you think that there's this inherent conflict of interest between the auditors and the, the auditees, such that the auditees can't be paying the auditors. It's really interesting because, you know, I was talking to Ryan Carrier, founder of For Humanity, who was trying to support this third-party auditor system. 
you're gonna have to come. You're gonna have to come back, and we're gonna have to talk about this. Brian thinks it's the solution. You think it's a totally backwards answer. We're gonna have to have a fight, a good one, a friendly yeah. one. Yeah, let's have an argument about it. I'm totally, I'm, I'm totally open to it. What's uh, better than a, what's better than a good argument, right? Yeah. Both of you, I, we're out of time, unfortunately. Great talking to both of you. Thank you so much for coming on. I've learned a bunch, and I hope you'll come back. Yeah, anytime. So anyone in contact with us. We are like living people in Brooklyn. Shoot us, you know, shoot us an email. All three of us are in Brooklyn. They can meet all three of us at a coffee shop, and we can be <laughs> snobs about coffee and talk about bias. All right, thanks so much. See you later. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.